You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. If you're new here, my name is Amanda Matta, and I have a degree in art history. If you are a returning listener, you already knew that, and I did not need to repeat myself, but here we are. It feels like a lot has happened since the last time we talked, doesn't it? The UK had a coronation. I had an interview with the author of Bridgerton, Julia Quinn. Oh my god, uh, it feels like everything just popped off in the month of May and we're finally settling down a bit, so I'm very happy to be just sitting here and recording today. Earlier this week, I also made a guest appearance on a podcast which I'm going to plug for you if you like my Royals content that I do outside of this podcast. If you are a new listener or maybe you didn't know, my main platform is on TikTok and Instagram where I cover all things royal, the tea as we like to call it. And this week I got to be on a podcast of two dear friends of mine, Meredith and Alex, who run the Lady Audacity, T-E-A, podcast. We talked about royal media and just, I mean, we dished a little bit about some gossip that's floating around the space, and it was just an all-around good time. I cannot recommend their show enough. You can get it, I think, wherever you listen to your podcasts, definitely on Spotify and Apple, and that's, again, Lady Audacity, but T-E-A at the end. I, I think it's really clever. If you are new to Art of History, the premise here is pretty simple on my show. We're talking about my show now. (laughs) Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past, and I will let you know what that's going to be this week in just a moment, or you can, you know, read the episode title of the episode that you're currently listening to. I will also post the artwork and some supplemental images over on the Instagram for the show, which is Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give us a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. And just before we dive in, this is your cursory reminder to rate the show, give it a nice review on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, subscribe and tell a friend about me because, you know, it's summer, people are going to be on road trips, they need something to listen to, right? Okay, that's enough chit-chat out of me. I promised myself that I would never become one of those podcasters who makes you listen to like 20 minutes of just life updates and rambles before we get into the meat of the show. So without further ado, today I want to tell you not only a story through a work of art, or really a body of works, but also I want to discuss a work of art that has been used to tell a story quite recently. Now, I did kind of get this idea from myself, as in our last episode discussing the painting The Raft of the Medusa, I talked about a cameo that it made in a recent film, John Wick Chapter 4, cinematic masterpiece, obviously, not even being sarcastic there. And, you know, the painting in that movie gave 
a few clues, a bit of foreshadowing as to the end of the movie and maybe the franchise itself, but it didn't play as big a role in developing a character as the one we're going to discuss today. And that's because I want to break down the use of a Mark Rothko painting in Ryan Johnson's 2022 film Glass Onion. So if you haven't yet crossed that film off of your watch list, first of all, what are, what are you doing? It's an amazing movie. Go watch it. But second of all, you might want to save this episode until after you've done that if you're trying to avoid spoilers. And I don't mean spoilers like I'm going to ruin the ending or the twist of the movie for you. More so, the characterization unfolding before you is really part of the experience of watching that movie for the first time. So I, I want you to go in without any knowledge of these characters so that you can kind of watch them unfold before you like an onion in the way that Ryan Johnson intended. And I will definitely prevent you from having that experience if I am your first introduction to this movie. So this is your warning because I'm gonna dive in. So, okay. All right, are we all good? Awesome. Glass Onion, which is of course the sequel to the 2019 instant murder mystery classic Knives Out, features, among other evocative sets, an extensive art collection situated in the luxurious vacation home of the fictional tech billionaire Miles Braun, who is played to perfection, really, by Edward Norton. This scene in the movie, where we first get a look inside his glass onion, his vacation home, just made me perk up. Catherine Hahn's character, upon entering Miles Braun's island home, compares it to the Tate Modern due to the extensive art collection that he has amassed inside. This includes notable works by Cy Twombly, Francis Bacon, Vincent van Gogh, Henri Matisse, and even Leonardo da Vinci. These pieces were all, I'm sure, painstakingly recreated by the film's props department, and there are even replica sculptures in the vein of Jeff Koons and Brancusi. The film Glass Onion itself is a commentary on wealth, corruption, and overinflated ego, so many viewers immediately drew comparisons between the character Miles and the real-life billionaire tech bros such as Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. This is not least of all because these are all men who have touted themselves and have been propped up as geniuses by their fans. But in reality, they largely owe their success to their habit of profiting off the ideas of others. They are also, in reality, really, really dumb. I think we can say that here. So now it's obviously a well-known truth that all the money and power in the world cannot buy taste. So Miles' display style for his eclectic art collection in the film Glass Onion is one of our first clues that he is merely play-acting as someone with this discerning eye and refined sensibility. This is evident from the way that there seems to be no attempt made at all to display his art collection with any thought given to artistic movement or time period or even geographic point of origin as a method of arranging things. It's really just a jumble of expensive artworks. But it's the inclusion of a painting by Mark Rothko, number 207, that got a standing ovation from me. In the film, it is hung in pride of place among Miles' sunken living room, ostensibly to serve as an emblem of his taste, sophistication, and influence. There is just one problem, though. Miles has hung the Rothko upside down. Let me say that again. He hung the damn Rothko upside down. 
Now, director Ryan Johnson positioned the painting in this way very intentionally, and it serves to drive home the point of just how little Miles knows or even cares to learn about this amazing collection. While there are people like me, and probably you if you're choosing to listen to this show in your free time, by the way, thank you, there are people like us that would kill to have just one of those pieces in a room alone with us for 15 minutes, right? We don't even have to own it. We just want to be in the same space as this artwork. To Miles, who has purchased it and taken it home with him, these pieces are just a status symbol. The upside down masterpiece also gives us a subtle indication of Miles' complete lack of self-awareness and common sense. Like, how hard would it have been to look up a photo of the painting you've purchased for probably millions of dollars before having it installed? Now, if you can't tell, I'm getting a little worked up and it's not just because of the class, you know, distinction here between me and a fictional billionaire. It's also because this is probably one of the worst artists that this could have happened to. Of course, worst really means best in this context because it just drives home those points even harder. But Rothko being the one who is given this treatment by this tech billionaire, it's just... Ugh. So, in an attempt to convey to you why this detail was simultaneously so perfect and so enraging, today we are going to delve into the life story of Mark Rothko, which really is a story of one of the first purely American art movements, so I'm very excited to do this one today. My hope is by the end of this episode, if I've done my job correctly, you are in the same emotional place that I currently am. So, to that end... Born Marcus Rothkovich in 1903 to one Jacob Rothkovitz, a pharmacist, and Anna Kate Golden Rothkovitz, who had married in 1886, Mark was the fourth child of the family. He was the youngest child, actually, by a long shot. His nearest sibling was eight years his senior. Mark was born in a city called Dvinsk, which is now known as Dogovpils in modern-day Latvia. But at the time of his birth, his hometown was still under the heel of the Russian Empire. Davinsk boasted a population of around 90,000 people then, and about half of these residents, including the Rothkovich family, were Jewish. Despite being a developed industrial city located on a busy railway junction, Davinsk was not untouched by the violent pogroms ordered by the Russian state which swept the region. And though no major massacres happened in his city, Mark witnessed firsthand the apprehension and dread that plagued all Jewish communities at this time. Still, Mark's father enrolled him in the town's Jewish school when he was five, where he spent his days memorizing and translating religious texts. He would later complain that he never had much of a childhood as a result. For some reason, all of his older siblings had gotten to go to public school, but Mark was sent to the religious school. The violence and unrest in the region eventually prompted Mark's father to gradually start moving the family to the United States, where his two brothers, Mark's uncles, had been able to establish clothing firms. When Mark was seven, his father left the family behind, traveling through Ellis Island en route to join his brothers in Portland, Oregon, where they had established themselves. Mark's two brothers soon followed, with an added incentive, they were aiming to avoid being drafted into the Tsar's army. At just 10 years old, the rest of the Rothkoviches, Mark and his mother Kate, as well as his sister, 
also relocated and joined the men in Portland, Oregon. This, as you can imagine, was quite a jarring shift, and it left Rothko, as I'll now refer to him, with the perpetual feeling of being an outsider. For the rest of his life, he was really searching for ways to find a community. Less than a year after the family's arrival in the U.S., Rothko's father died, leaving the family without any way to make a living as they had originally intended. His mother Kate took in boarders, and his siblings worked odd jobs until eventually settling into roles as pharmacists themselves, taking after their father, who had worked as a pharmacist in Dvinsk. Rothko was enrolled in public school, where he quickly learned English and moved at an accelerated pace through the grades, achieving his diploma in 1921 at the age of 17. Thanks to good grades, Rothko achieved a scholarship to Yale University, but this was at a time when the administration still imposed quotas on Jewish students that would be admitted. Once they actually were admitted, Jewish students still weren't permitted to participate in many extracurriculars or societies on campus. Nevertheless, Rothko studied English, French, history, elementary mathematics, physics, biology, economics, the history of philosophy, and general psychology at Yale. His plan initially was to become an engineer or an attorney. But his scholarship ran out after a year, and the odd jobs that he took on weren't enough to completely finance his studies. Rothko left Yale in 1923 without receiving a degree. Instead of going back to Oregon, he opted to move to New York City in order to, in his own words, quote, wander around, bum about, and starve a bit. There, in 1924, Rothko enrolled in a life drawing class at the Art Students League. It was a choice that would alter his life's trajectory. In his own telling, he discovered painting by accident as he visited friends at the League one day. There, he saw that they were making sketches of a nude model, Quote, I knew then that this would be my life. He briefly studied under the artist Max Weber, one of America's first Cubist painters, who encouraged Rothko to work in a figurative style reminiscent of Paul Cezanne. Weber himself was enamored with the French Expressionists, the Fauvists, and he developed his own curriculum of sorts, which emphasized the emotional power of art and the way that it could translate an inner vision into pictorial space. Some of Rothko's own work from his early exploratory career is clearly modeled after Weber's own compositions with a post-impressionist flair. A depiction of three nudes from 1933 to 34, which I will post on the IG, illustrates this to a T. After a brief return to Portland, Rothko found himself being pulled back to New York, where he enrolled at the New York School of Design. In 1927, he began attending salons at the home of painter Milton Avery, eventually becoming friends with other members of the group. Among them were names like Barnett Newman and Adolf Gottlieb, whose artistic careers were destined to one day fall neatly beside Rothko's in the history books. And I really love this for him because he found that community he was looking for from the outset of his artistic career. These are people who will pop up beside him in his own life as well. In 1929, Rothko began teaching children painting and clay sculpture at the Center Academy of the Jewish Center in Brooklyn, a position that he continued in until 1952. In a speech that he once gave at the school, he spoke of the, quote, difference between sheer skill and skill that is linked to spirit, expressiveness, and personality. 
The result is a constant creative activity in which the child creates an entire cosmology, which expresses the infinitely varied and exciting world of a child's fancies and experience. Rothko really saw in children who were also artists the very essence of what art meant to him, and of course we'll, we'll get to this in a few minutes. In the summer of 1932, he met a young jewelry designer named Edith Sacker while on a visit to Lake George. Their relationship began as a, quote, romantic affair with mutual artistic ambitions, and they were married by mid-November of that same year. However, they quickly burned out as they lived a, quote, bohemian lifestyle in New York, and these two would divorce in 1943. Rothko's first solo art exhibition was held in 1933 at the Museum of Art in his adopted hometown of Portland, Oregon. Another was held a few months later, across the country in his second, I think, adopted hometown, in the Contemporary Arts Gallery in New York. This exhibition included landscapes, nudes, portraits, and city scenes. At this early point in his career, Rothko's works were decidedly figurative. They represented real objects and places and people, with albeit a surrealist slant. He painted subjects that, quote, ranged from the subway to mystical birds to reconsiderations of the Last Supper and the Crucifixion. Many of his canvases contained urban street scenes or interiors which contained just ordinary figures. The National Gallery writes of his style during this time, quote, Rejecting conventional modes of representation, he stressed an emotional approach to the subject, an approach he admired in children's art, and adopted a style characterized by deliberate deformations and a crude application of paint. But like so many artists whose work becomes more abstracted from reality over time, I'm thinking of Pablo Picasso as an example of this, Rothko did have a strong foundational art education. He studied in the galleries of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and also studied philosophy, particularly works of Friedrich Nietzsche and the Greek thinkers and dramatists of antiquity. He even went so far as to write his own philosophical treatise on art-making, titled The Artist's Reality. In it, Rothko explored topics like, quote, generalization since the Renaissance, primitive civilization's influence on modern art, and indigenous art, further demonstrating that while he was trying to push art forward, he was often looking to the past. Now, you heard me say primitive civilization's influence on modern art just now. Primitivism was all the rage in the early 20th century art world. It was a movement in which forms tended to be more simple and abstract, as artists sought to prove that so-called primitive humans were inherently more noble than us because of the, quote, simpler way in which they ostensibly viewed and represented the world around them. It is a bit of a derogatory and fraught term these days, and I wish we had a better one, because the early 20th century artists using this term weren't just looking to, like, cavemen as, as primitive artists, they were also looking to non-Western civilizations in their own time and calling them primitive. Rothko understood this influence of so-called primitive art on the modern, but his own art in this period, quote, invoked biological and geological elements without actually describing them. He was becoming more and more influenced by surrealism, but was destined to push past it, venturing, quote, into the pictorial and psychological unknown. 
In short, his slant to his artistic work was always, always bending towards full abstraction. A few months after his two first solo exhibitions, at the end of 1934, Rothko exhibited alongside artists such as Adolf Gottlieb, Louis Harris, Ilya Bolotovsky, and Joseph Salman at the Gallery Secession. These expressionist artists, who focused on subjective emotional represent- Hello? How unprofessional of me, but also I think that's the first time this has happened as I've been producing this podcast, so that's that's pretty good. What was I saying? Oh, yes. Okay. So these artists who he was exhibiting with were expressionists who, even if they were depicting a real person or place or thing, focused more on their subjective emotions around that thing when they were painting over the objective, like, true nature of the thing. These artists would soon form their own group, known as the Ten, when the Secession Gallery, which kind of represented them, closed down. The Ten, which is not to be confused with a group of Impressionists who had used that name a generation earlier, exhibited their art together nine times between 1935 and 1939. Rothko was a pivotal member of this group, but even so, one of his works from this time, Interior 1936, which I will put on the Instagram, seems to portend the more abstract style with which he would ultimately become synonymous. Its, quote, coloristic division of space into rectangular forms almost feels like a prophecy. You almost feel like you could strip away the details from the foreground of this canvas, and what would be left behind is one of Rothko's more famous color field paintings from later in his life. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do like to point out instances of real-life foreshadowing like this. During this period, Rothko also worked in the easel division of the federally sponsored WPA, or Works Progress Administration, if you remember your alphabet soup from American history class. This was where many artists working during the Great Depression found avenues to continue being paid for creating. He created art for the New York subway, of all places, during this time, which turned the bustling metropolitan underworld into a haunting stage scene a measured yet eccentric place in which windows, doorways, and walls serve as structural and expressive devices of confinement. The figures within these paintings are pretty much universally melancholy. They almost look like Tim Burton characters, actually, as if they, quote, exist solely to inhabit the border that separates real and pictorial space. But the figures would start to disappear as the 1940s dawned. Rothko's imagery became more and more symbolic over time, owing in part to the anxiety that dominated the social climate of the late 30s and the World War II years. Rothko said, quote, It was with the utmost reluctance that I found the figure could not serve my purposes, but a time came when none of us could use the figure without mutilating it. In 1943, Rothko and Adolf Gottlieb wrote a letter to the art editor of the New York Times, in which they laid out the tenets of what would ultimately solidify into the abstract expressionist movement. Quote, We favor the simple expression of the complex thought. We are for the large shape because it has the impact of the unequivocal. We wish to reassert the picture plane. We are for flat forms because they destroy illusion and reveal truth. Now, modern art, of course, had been a thing for a few decades at this point, 
It first kind of appeared with the Impressionists in the late 19th century, then was picked up by the Fauvists, and then the Dada artists, and the Surrealists. You you get the idea. All of these movements had gotten their foothold in Europe, but what Rothko and his contemporaries were doing really brought the epicenter of an emerging modernist movement to America for the first time. The term abstract expressionism had appeared as early as the 1920s in connection to artist Vasily Kandinsky, but it was first used in connection with modern American painters in 1945 by the New Yorker's art critic Robert Coates. America, and the artists in New York in particular, were about to embrace the abstract in a big way. And we will dive right into the forms that that took right after this short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back. We're going to rejoin Mark Rothko in 1946, where he has just struck compositional gold with what he dubbed multiforms. These were, quote, busy, colorful compositions of fuzzy shapes and blots hovering against an often single-hued background. In 1947, Rothko definitively stated that he wanted to create works that, quote, have no direct association with any particular visible experience, but in them one recognizes the principles and passions of organisms. To do this, he whittled down his compositions, drastically reducing the number of forms and shapes that he would put on a canvas until he ultimately used no more than three or four rectangles per painting. By 1949, these multiforms had more or less solidified into the recognizable format that he would continue to develop throughout the rest of his career, the color field painting. It's fair to say that Rothko's stylistic evolution had reached its final phase at this point, taking him from a, quote, figurative visual repertoire to an abstract style rooted in the active relationship of the observer to the painting, and more on that in a moment. But that's not to say that Rothko found what worked in 1949 and stuck to it, just swapping out colors and measurements for the rest of his life. His son Christopher Rothko wrote in an essay for a 2019 retrospective at Vienna's Kunsthistorikmuseum. Anyone who thinks Rothko found a formula in 1949, which he simply applied and reapplied for the next 20 years, has not looked very closely at the work or listened to the distinct accent with which each painting speaks. 
Instantly recognizable despite their seeming simplicity, Rothko's color fields, such as number 207 that appears in the film Glass Onion, are composed of, quote, vertically aligned rectangular forms set within a wash of color. You've probably seen one of these paintings before, even if you didn't know who the artist was. Over time, these color fields became increasingly simplified. They also became larger in scale, with an open structure that seems to float before the viewer, engulfing your field of vision entirely. Rothko once explained, quote, I paint very large pictures. I realize that historically the function of painting large pictures is painting something very grandiose and pompous. He was a little bit of a character, if you couldn't tell. He goes on, quote, The reason I paint them, however, it is precisely because I want to be very intimate and human. To paint a small picture is to place yourself outside your experience, to look upon an experience as a stereopticon view or with a reducing glass. However, you paint the larger picture, you are in it. It isn't something you command. Rothko's work across his entire career is perhaps most celebrated for his effortless use of color within these large canvases. The tones that he chooses to play off of one another, usually variations within a single color family or carefully chosen complementary shades, are brought to life by their proximity to one another, and with the blurred edges which just barely provide boundaries between them. In some paintings, you'll find shades of pure blue against tangerine orange, or dark purple or deep maroon. In others, you'll find modulations of warm, sunny tones, orange, gold, yellow, or maybe earthy reds against browns and blacks. In the early 1950s, Rothko's palette often tended towards vibrant reds, oranges, and yellows. Over time, his paintings became more melancholy in tone and the colors became more deep and mysterious. He used browns, grays, dark blues, or reds and blacks. It's a style that you might think would cause the artist to run out of potential variations pretty quickly, but because of how sensitively and subtly Rothko handled color and shape, he was able to explore the full, quote, expressive potential of color contrasts and modulations with breathtaking nuance. It seems like if he was allowed to continue painting forever, he would never run out of emotionally resonant configurations that could be tapped into. To create his color field paintings, Rothko worked on untreated, unprimed canvases. Normally, you would treat your canvas with maybe a layer of white gesso before you're applying any paint to it to prevent the canvas from soaking up all of your pigment, which is pretty expensive. But Rothko embraced this absorption, repeatedly applying thin layers of pigmentation with light, fast brush strokes so that the underlying layers showed through. The outcome was a painting of great transparency and luminosity. He also generally painted his rectangles with soft, uneven edges. The result of this is the shapes overlaying the background color often seem to be gently hovering or floating above the canvas, even in cases when the rectangle in the foreground is of a color that would normally recede into the background, like a black or another cool tone. The thin tonal layers within the color fields overlap within these soft, brushy borders to create a pictorial space that seems to contain, quote, infinite distances, despite how shallow the paintings actually are. Remember, you're only looking at, you know, a two-dimensional flat plane. 
The color fields are read by a viewer as, quote, shimmering, pulsating color masses containing, quote, all the tragedy of the human condition. And this is despite the fact that Rothko has basically eliminated all human figures in his paintings from this point on. We are very firmly in abstract expressionist territory. Abstract expressionism is something that art historian Matthew Bagel calls, quote, more a term of convenience than a precise stylistic appellation, since artists included under its rubric did not always paint abstractly or expressionistically. Still, I think you'll find a lot of people, Americans especially, who identify this movement as their favorite. Bagel identifies two major subcategories as emerging by about 1950, the first emphasizing the painter's process through, quote, gestural marks. Think Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning's chaotic compositions. This is also called action painting. The second emphasized, quote, precise color harmonies and formal relationships. And in this group, Rothko is an undisputed leading figure. The point of this abstract expressionist art as a whole was to express feeling through the act, through the process of creating it, without fixating on the actual result, the artwork itself. It sort of stands to reason, then, that there wouldn't be a single unifying style across the board, though some artists were producing works in the same vein as Mark Rothko. His friend Barnett Newman was one, he also produced color fields, but these were much more, I would say, refined. The canvases were treated much more to a point of completion, I guess you could say. These mostly featured his trademark zip element, a singular vertical band of color used to disrupt the color field. Newman wrote in 1948, quote, We are freeing ourselves of the impediments of memory, association, nostalgia, legend, myth, or what have you, that have been devices of Western European painting. Instead of making cathedrals out of Christ, man, or, quote, life, we are making it out of ourselves, out of our own feelings. The image we produce can be understood by anyone who will look at it without the nostalgic glasses of history. Most abstract expressionists made New York City their home base, prompting the name the New York School to be attached to those working in this modernist mid-century American art scene. Bagel notes that all of these artists disavowed the use of art as a tool for education or democratic uplift, in favor of an aesthetic elitism in which art served as the true bearer of a higher culture, remote and different from popular culture. A 1954 issue of Art for America remarked that, quote, The modern artist does not paint in relation to public needs or social needs. He paints only in relation to his own needs. Artists working on the cutting edge of the abstract expressionist movement, quote, emphasized their responsibilities to art itself over all other affiliations, which served in turn to, quote, reinforce the growing separation of the artistic community from popular culture. Now, I have to say, as a little insertion here, I think they were wrong about this, as the lasting power of this abstract expressionist art, the way that it still speaks to people on a pretty much universal level, I think is proof that they did in some ways democratize the art scene. Although this wasn't really out of a spirit of, you know, anyone can cook, to quote Disney's Ratatouille, but it was more so a way of reinforcing that art communicates something that is universal. 
or at least which should be universal in these artists' minds. Because the abstract expressionist explored improvised techniques as a means of, quote, expressing feeling without the inhibitions of specific content, eliminating the ability for critics to make any specific historic or cultural references while analyzing their work. The canvas therefore became an extension of the artist's psyche, of their personality, in a way that really hadn't been done before. This was quite fitting, too, as existentialism, a philosophical movement which, quote, raises questions concerning responsibility for the self and ways of achieving self-definition, was also gaining traction at the same time. The 1948 English translation of Jean-Paul Sartre's Existentialism is a Humanism must have surely resonated with artists like Rothko, especially where it claims that, quote, there is no reality except in action. The desire to record and perhaps process one's feelings through artistic actions had become, in this way, life or death. Christopher Rothko writes, quote, Reality was not so much depicted from without as illuminated from within. If this is a quality we see frequently in Rothko's work, it served not simply as a sensory lore, but also as an expression of philosophically driven ideas about the essence of painting and how it can speak to universal truths. Rothko didn't just focus his attention inwards while producing his color field paintings, he was also trying to create a quote, consummated experience between picture and onlooker. If you've ever viewed a Rothko painting in person, I really hope that you've had this experience. Of his art, Rothko said things like quote, no possible set of notes can explain our paintings, and quote, a picture lives by companionship, expanding and quickening in the eyes of the sensitive observer. He believed that art should be a source of spiritual and emotional contemplation, and said in a 1961 interview, quote, the people who weep before my pictures are having the same religious experience I had when I painted them, and if you are moved only by their color relationships, then you miss the point. Yes, you heard me correctly, gallery goers literally weep in front of Rothko's paintings, and I have to say, I am one of them. I will give the caveat that I was about maybe 21 when I had this experience, I was studying abroad, I felt like my world was just ever expanding, and I did. I sat down in front of a Rothko, I think it was at the Tate in London, and I just cried. <laughs> At the time, I was also kind of struggling to build my own worldview. I was getting an art history degree for one thing and questioning every decision I had made associated with that. But I was also coming to terms with my Catholic upbringing. I hadn't yet started meditating, which is something I do in my daily life now. But I even then understood that as part of my faith. Catholics sit in contemplative thought about the saints and about Christ and... When I sat in front of this painting, I tried to let myself get absorbed into it, get engulfed by it, because I knew that that was the artist's intention for looking at this piece. And all of those feelings just just washed over me. It was, I, I, I have to say, really intense and really profound. So I can attest this is a real thing that happens. It's not just the artist, you know, talking up his own work here. I can also attest that the huge size of these canvases is part of the equation. They can easily, you know, overwhelm you, allow you to hone in just on these floating masses of color and the blurry edges between picture plane and reality. 
And I love this description. They quote, induce a feeling of isolation in a limitless world. And that's why Rothko said that quote, nothing should stand between my painting and the viewer. In this way, Rothko and his other abstract expressionists owed a lot to the Surrealists, who a generation earlier had, quote, unleashed the power of the unconscious and had embraced automatic painting techniques, techniques in which the artist suppresses conscious control over their art-making process. I should also note that Rothko really bristled at being called an abstract expressionist or with his art being called abstract at all. Quote, my art is not abstract. It lives and breathes. He also said, quote, you might as well get one thing straight. I'm not an abstractionist. I'm not interested in the relationship of color to form or anything else. I'm interested only in expressing basic human emotions, tragedy, ecstasy, doom, and so on. And the fact that a lot of people break down and cry when confronted with my pictures shows that I can communicate those. I don't think of Rothko as a particularly humble man, but I kind of think of him here as deliberately downplaying what did seem to be a, a real skill for creating color and shape relationships in order to kind of prevent himself from being described only as a one-dimensional, you know, technically skilled artist. Claiming that the technical aspects of painting didn't interest him allowed for a more, you know, elevated reading of his artwork. Here's that elitism coming into play again. I think that color and form interested him a great deal. After all, those were his primary modes of expression. He, at this point, had eliminated everything else from his works. Shape, form, light, shadow, even, you know, line. There are no lines in these paintings. However, Rothko also, kind of unhelpfully, stopped giving any explanation or reasoning to the meaning or purpose of his individual artworks by the mid-1950s. He said that, quote, silence is so accurate, and went on, quote, my painting's surfaces are expansive and push outward in all directions, or their surfaces contract and rush inward in all directions. Between these two poles, you can find everything I want to say. So once again, you have that anti-democratic refusal to give people like an easy in to his art. But once you sort of grasp the way you're supposed to approach his paintings, the meaning is there for you to find. And like other meditation tools, they can be used to serve you in really any situation that you find yourself in, as long as it connects to human emotion. I need to pull us out of the contemplative bit of the art historical lesson here to give you some more life details. Rothko had met his second wife, Mary Alice, known as Mel, in 1944, and he married her in early 1945. In 1950, they had welcomed a daughter, Kathy Lynn, who they called Kate in honor of Rothko's mother. From 1951 to 54, he taught in the art department at Brooklyn College, New York. In 1952, the Museum of Modern Art included his abstract works in the era-defining exhibition 15 Americans. Also included in this exhibition were gestural abstract expressionist Jackson Pollock, maybe you've heard of him, and Austrian-American artist Frederick Keisler, who was, he really worked across multiple genres of art, sculpture, painting, architecture, he once said that these should, quote, not be used as wedges to split our experience of art and life. They are here to link, to correlate, to bind dream and reality. 
1958, Rothko received the honor of representing the United States at the Venice Biennale. That same year, he also accepted a commission to complete a series of, quote, murals, really just extra-large canvases, for the Four Seasons restaurant in New York City's Seagram Building, newly acquired by, yes, beverage company Joseph Seagram & Sons. This was, as art historian Simon Shama put it, quote, bringing his monumental dramas right into the belly of the beast. Rothko traveled to Europe while working on this commission, and he disclosed to a journalist on the Atlantic Crossing that his true intention for the Seagram murals was to paint, quote, something that will ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. Not only that, he also hoped that his paintings would make the restaurant's patrons, quote, feel they are trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up so that all they can do is butt their heads forever against the wall. So immediately, uh, the, the patron and the artist may, I'm sensing, have different hopes for the outcome of this commission here. He found inspiration for these pieces in the physical spaces he toured in Rome, Florence, Venice, and Pompeii, both in rooms like Michelangelo's Laurentian Library, which gave him exactly the sort of walled-in feeling he was apparently envisioning for the Seagram murals, as well as in the Pompeian Villa of Mysteries, which contributed a somber color palette of reds, browns, and blacks. A critic who later visited Rothko's studio described the colors he chose as darkly luminous. From the Tate Britain, quote, he was interested in having a permanent setting for the works, such as the dining room, so that they could always be shown as a group and in an immersive environment. But as his ambitions for the paintings grew, he, quote, no longer saw the restaurant as an appropriate location for his paintings. Put more bluntly, he found the Four Seasons dining room when he visited to be too pretentious to house his paintings. This kind of coming from the king of pretension, but I, I guess it's in a, different, in a different vein. In 1960, Rothko canceled the contract and returned his cash advance. He never fully explained his reasoning for canceling the commission entirely, you know, not just going back to the drawing board and reworking it. But he did write to a fellow artist at the time, quote, when I returned, I looked again at my paintings and then visited the premises for which they were destined. It seemed clear to me at once that the two were not for each other. He stored the Seagram murals until 1969, when Rothko gave a group of the paintings intended for the commission to the Tate Britain. He presented them largely because he admired the work of J.M.W. Turner and hoped that they would be displayed in a gallery next to those that housed the Turner bequest. In 1961, a retrospective of his work was held at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The curator, Peter Sells, wrote of Rothko's work at that time, The open rectangles suggest the rims of flame in containing fires or the entrances to tombs, but unlike the doors to the dwellings of the dead, which were meant to shut out the living from the place of absolute night, these paintings, open sarcophagi, moodily dare and thus invite the spectator to enter. Their subject might be death and resurrection, the artist descending to Hades to find the Eurydice of his vision. The door to the tomb opens for the artist in search of his muse. So I think you can tell we're kind of getting a little deeper and darker in tone as time goes on. Rothko visited the retrospective daily, observing his own paintings with intensity. In 1963, he and his wife Mel welcomed their second child, a son Christopher, into the world. 
1964, John and Dominique de Menil, who were, quote, oil-rich patrons of the art, commissioned Rothko to create canvases for a chapel in Houston. He would ultimately produce 14 large-scale paintings featuring his trademark rectangles in shades of purple and black, which to this day remain mounted along the walls of the sanctuary. The Rothko Chapel, as it is now known, opened in February 1971 as an interfaith sanctuary and a center for human rights. Out front, a steel sculpture called Broken Obelisk sits in the middle of a pool. It appears to be floating on the surface of the water. This piece is by Rothko's fellow abstract expressionist Barnett Newman. The rest of the art at the site is attributed to Rothko alone, making the chapel itself a one-man art museum. The chapel is a windowless, octagonal brick building. Solid black doors open onto a tiny glass-walled foyer, and beyond this, the main room is a, quote, hushed space with gray stucco walls, each filled by massive paintings. Some feature one canvas, while on others, three canvases hang side by side to form a triptych. Visitors come to view the art, but also to commune with one another and the universe. Meditation hour is regularly held in the chapel, and guests are invited to, quote, explore the relationship between the sacred and the self within its walls. Of the 14 canvases, chapel historian Suna Umari once explained, quote, they're sort of a window to beyond. Rothko said the bright colors sort of stop your vision at the canvas, where dark colors go beyond. And definitely, you're looking at the beyond. You're looking at the infinite. At first glance, the paintings in the chapel appear to be made up of solid, dark colors. But looking closely at them, inviting yourself to get enveloped by them, reveals that they are actually composed of Rothko's trademark washes of pigment, which create variations across every inch of canvas. Quote, Stepping back, waves of subtle color difference appear across the broad surfaces, leading to an unmistakable impression of physical depth. I believe that these are some of the largest canvases that Rothko completed, the largest coming in at around 15 by 11 feet. Rothko told friends that he intended the chapel to be his single most important artistic statement. He was very involved in the layout of the building itself, insisting that it feature a central cupola like that of his studio. And when I say he was involved, he was involved, to the point that the original architect bowed out of completing the project because he and Rothko couldn't agree on the lighting concept. He was replaced, and Rothko evidently got his way because he simulated the lighting he planned for the chapel inside his New York City studio. The chapel would indeed have a lasting legacy. As historian Umari says, people feel it's their place. They come and they have a problem and they cry in this space. If you look at the comment books, they make comments to each other as though this was their personal little diary. However, just after completing the works for the chapel, Rothko's own star began to wane. Pop art, that shiny British import hitting the shores of the US around this time, began to capture the attention of young artists like Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. With his trademark brusqueness and elitism combined into a very interesting cocktail, Rothko described the pop artists as, quote, charlatans and young opportunists. Many of his New York school compatriots shared his view that pop art was really more of an anti-art than anything that they were producing. Rothko's physical and mental health also took a sharp decline at this point. 
He was struck with an aortic aneurysm in 1968, which prevented him from installing his paintings in the Rothko Chapel, nor ever seeing the finished site. His doctors at this time encouraged him to reduce his alcohol intake, to smoke less, and to improve his diet. He ignored all of these tips, and really, what did we expect? He was forced into making smaller paintings, often no larger than 40 inches, also on doctor's orders. Some said that he had simply burned himself out with the chapel's murals. He and his wife Mel separated in 1969, probably because of how miserable he was becoming. He moved into his studio, despite his enormous wealth from the success of his artistic career. There, he drank, he smoked, and he took prescribed drugs to excess. A dark, somber work, like the one I'm going to put on the Instagram, most of these uh, are called Untitled. (laughs) This one is Untitled, 1969-70. to A work like this is typical of the paintings that Rothko produced in the last years of his life, when friends described him as lonely, suspicious, and anxious. He was depressive, suffering from confusion, and at times, debilitating intoxication. An additional series from this time, known as the Black on Greys, uniformly featured a black rectangle above a grey one. Many are tempted to read these paintings as indicators of Rothko's depression as, quote, pictorial suicide notes. The rebuttal view suggests that the dark paintings that he produced towards the end of his life reflected not so much a darkening of his mood as a deepening of feeling. Remember how I said he also rejected any, like, literal or historic or, like, culturally informed interpretation of his work? I have to say, where the black on greys are concerned, I am pretty tickled by an interpretation of them as, quote, moonscapes, as the Apollo moon landings took place while Rothko was completing them. I'll post one of these on the Instagram as well, so you can kind of see what I mean. In 1969, Rothko finally received his college degree from Yale, who awarded him an honorary doctorate. The award read, quote, As one of the few artists who can be counted among the founders of a new school of American painting, you have made an enduring place for yourself in the art of this century. In your paintings, you have attained a visual and a spiritual grandeur whose foundation is the tragic vein in all human existence. And yet, Rothko's world just kept closing in around him. By this point, he was producing paintings only for a select few patrons, who basically had to qualify through an interview process before even being allowed to purchase a painting. He became increasingly dependent on a man named Bernard Rees, who was a financial counselor who became one of Rothko's closest confidants in his final years. It was Rees who suggested that Rothko form a foundation that would carry his name, and in 1969, the Mark Rothko Foundation was begun, with the purpose of carrying out research and education in the arts. The foundation was promised to receive a large number of Rothko's paintings after his death. He had completed some 860 canvases during his lifetime, some insane number. At Reese's urging, Rothko also authorized the sale of some of his works to the Marlboro Gallery, an up-and-coming New York gallery which had previously contracted the exclusive rights to all Rothko's works outside the United States. Now, it just so happened that Reese was also an accountant for the Marlboro Gallery. His double dealing with them will return in a big way in just a few minutes. 
Now, at this point, I avoided saying this earlier to avoid spoilers, but I do have to give you a content warning for a graphic description of suicide. So if you are not in the headspace to hear that today, I would invite you to skip forward about 45 seconds. On the day that Rothko was supposed to meet with a gallery representative to choose which pieces would go to the Marlborough Gallery, February 25th, 1970, his assistant, Oliver Steindecker, instead opened the door to Rothko's studio slash residence at his usual 9 a.m. He called out good morning, as he did every day, but received no reply. He found Mark Rothko lying in the kitchen on the floor beside the sink. He was covered in blood, and both of his arms were slit open, with a razor blade laying by his side. His death was ruled a suicide, and had been accelerated by acute poisoning from barbiturates being used as antidepressants. Rothko was 66 years old, and he had left no note. That same day, the Seagram murals arrived at the Tate Britain for display. Some of his friends were not all that surprised by his self-inflicted death. They recognized that Rothko's passion had died long before he did, and his final works seemed, quote, robbed of any emotive power which might enable a viewer to open a lively dialogue. Rothko's daughter, Kate, was 19 at the time of his death, and his son, Christopher, was just six. Christopher would later talk about using his father's artworks to get to know him as a person, and that's just a heartbreaking detail, really. But since then, he has been able to contribute remarkably to the understanding of Rothko's paintings. Just six months after Rothko's death, Kate and Christopher's mother, Rothko's second wife, Mel, also died at the age of 48. She was a heavy drinker, just as Rothko had been, and her death was due to, quote, hypertension from cardiovascular disease. Nearly 800 artworks now entered the care of Bernard Rees, along with the two other managers of his estate, the anthropologist Dr. Morton Levine and the artist Theodore Stamos. Rees oversaw the sale of an enormous number of Rothko's paintings to the Marlborough Gallery, which, remember, Rothko had been ignorant of Rees's ties to, and he sold these pieces at a substantially reduced rate. He then split the profits from the sales with the other estate managers and gallery representatives. In case you didn't realize, that that's, that's a big no-no. In 1971, Kate Rothko filed a lawsuit against Reese Levine and Stamos over the sham sales. This became one of the 20th century art world's greatest scandals. The case took years to resolve, but in 1975, the judge ruled that the executors of Rothko's estate were to forfeit their posts and that the contract with the Marlborough Gallery was invalid. 658 paintings were returned to the Rothko estate. That's just a staggering number. His heirs were awarded an eye-watering amount of damages to the tune of $9 million. Now, of course, that number is truly just a fraction of the painting's actual value. Kate was ruled sole executor of Rothko's estate, and she entered into a new agreement with the Pace Gallery in New York to represent her father's work going forward. Their first exhibition of Rothko's artworks there coincided with a massive retrospective containing over 100 paintings at the Guggenheim Museum in 1978. 
Since then, the Rothko Foundation has donated over 600 paintings to 25 museums across the United States, as well as to several in Europe and Israel. When the Rothko Chapel opened in Houston in 1971, Dominique de Menil praised the late painter, saying, quote, Like all great artists who follow an inner call, he sacrificed everything superfluous to his vision. The message he had to deliver was a timeless one. And where better to find Rothko's memory than in his reflective paintings? The hundreds of canvases that he left to the world speak for him. They speak to his unwavering commitment to a singular artistic vision, one that would alter the very trajectory of American art. Collector Ben Heller wrote of Rothko and his paintings, quote, How could he, with such a small number of variations, initiate discussions between picture and viewer as personal, direct, and intimate as chamber music? How could he, with these few combinations in a palette of hot and cold, shiny and matte, rapturous and melancholy colors, call forth feelings that create the breadth, variety, drama, depth, and panorama of the orchestral music which he so utterly loved? Who can answer such questions? Only the pictures themselves and each observer. And now, maybe you understand my frustration, no, my fury, my inner white-hot rage that I felt at a fictional, yes, fictional billionaire who, with all the money and time necessary to embark on a one-on-one -on -one relationship with one of these divinely charged canvases, hung the damn Rothko upside down. That is going to be all from me today. I think I'm going to go rewatch either Knives Out or Glass Onion. Actually, I've made myself want to watch it again. <laughs> Do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and share it with a friend. It really does help me get in front of new listeners. If you're interested in supporting me further, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash fact. That's M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. Um, and I continue, of course, to make my royal history videos on TikTok, also at Mata of Fact. As always, if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode or what you would like to hear next, I, I would genuinely love to hear from you. You can either leave a comment or shoot me a DM on the Instagram or send me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much for listening. Until the next one.